Okay, we will read from the Romans chapter 4 from 9. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We have been saying that Abraham's face was credited to him as a righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after but before. And he received circumcision as a sign, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then he is the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised in order that righteousness might be credited to them. And he is then also the father of the circumcised who not only are circumcised but who also follow in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if whose who depend on the law are heirs, faith means nothing, and the promise is worthless, because the law brings wrath, and there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, the promise comes by faith, so that is maybe by grace and maybe guaranteed to all Abraham offspring, not only to whose who are the law, but also to whose who have the faith of Abraham. He is the father of all of us. And as it's written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sign of God, in whom we believe the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations, just as it has been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his face, he faced the fact that his body was as good as that since he was about a hundred years old and that Saran's womb was also that. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but he was strengthened in his face and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do that he was promised. This is why it was credited to him as a righteousness. The words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was the delivered over to death for our sins, and he was raised to life for our justification. Amen. And may I add my welcome, especially if you're visiting or for the first time. Uh, I think I spoke to most of you for the first time, but just in case I skip someone, um, a, a very warm welcome. Um, this is um, actually a Reformation Sunday, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that, but basically Reformation Sunday, uh, what we do, we remember that 500, I think, and six years ago, a guy in Germany called Martin Luther nailed literally, and I think metaphorically, the truth that God makes people right with him by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone and according to the scriptures alone. So basically Martin Luther was bringing, wanting to bring the church that, that got off the rails back to the source, 
back to the Bible in, in Latin, ad fontes, you know, the great kind of reformation slogan. And this is where we are in Romans, actually. It's a very, very fitting passage um, in the Reformation Sunday. Right, so we, we got this, we got this um, out of um, the way. Uh, well, let, let me start with um, a kind of a little, a very little, little story. I remember very, very vividly the night when I told my best friend that I became a Christian. We sat in the kitchen of the flat that we shared as students and we drank the peppermint tea. I don't know what is it with Latvians and peppermint tea, but we just like the peppermint tea. Anyways, uh, they're sipping peppermint tea. My friend was listening to my testimony of me becoming a Christian. He listened for a while and then at one point he shouted out in frustration, why do you have to let yourself rot with this Jewish religion? Why do you have to let yourself rot with this Jewish religion? Now, I don't, I, I don't know about your country, but Latvians, they are quite proud of their ethnic, ethnic pagan roots. In recent years, this sense of identity, it has come back. We call it the rise of neo-paganism. So you would often hear Latvians respond in a very similar way uh, to my friend when invited to consider Jesus. What is it I have in common with this Jewish religion? You know, more than 2,000 years ago, more than 2,000 kilometers away, Jews nailed to the tree one of their own. What does it have to do with me? I mean, it sounds kind of persuasive, right, when you kind of state it. What does it have to do with me? How would you respond? How would you respond? Consider most of us here from so many different backgrounds and different corners of the world. Imagine someone you know asking you this same question next week. Why are you a Christian? How would you respond? Well, we know it all has to do with Jesus, right? Turns out that the one they, that, you know, they're one of their own that who, who got nailed to the tree was not just some local rebel or even some kind of local deity. Glance at the very last verse of our passage, chapter 4, verse 25. God raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. But where, where is the link? Think. If Jesus died and rose from the dead, he is the Lord of the living and the dead. The implications are straightforward, right? It concerns everyone. It concerns you. It concerns me. It concerns our non-Christian friends, colleagues, university mates. And the good news is, and here is, I think, the main, the big theme of this passage, God who raises the dead 
keeps his promise to give life, even today. And Paul is writing this so that we and everyone else who believes may trust that the life-giving God is able to make you and your friends right with him. God is able. You know, but that was not so straightforward to Paul's Jewish um, readers then. And dare I say, it is not that clear at all to so many people today. What is it with this Abrahamic, you know, religion? Is it not for the, for the Jews? And I think Paul answers in Romans, yes and no. Yes, Abraham indeed is, look at verse 1 of chapter 4, Abraham indeed is the forefather of the Jews, for verse 1, but he also is, Paul says today, the father of us all, verse 11, two times in verse 12, and verse 16, Abraham, the father of us all. So last week we saw how Abraham was called and was made right with God, but not through works, not through his own good deeds. In our today's passage, Paul takes it further. Abraham was made right with God, but not through circumcision, not because he was a Jew. And that's where we're going to first spend our time from verses uh, 9 to 12. I mean, it's, it's hard. It's hard for us to get it, maybe, because we just don't feel the same sentiment about it. But circumcision was something that defined, defined one as the people of God. It was a clear mark throughout the Old Testament that divided the whole of humanity in two groups, Jews and Gentiles. And this inevitably carried across to the New Testament when Paul started to preach the gospel of grace. The immediate implications actually were not so clear at all. You know, the Jewish Christians, they, were, they regarded faith in Jesus, let's say, essential, but in order to become one of the people of God, they insisted you still needed to be circumcised. The letter that particularly addresses this, is, this issue is, is Galatians. Now, Paul was more than keen to get things straight with this church. In his letter to Galatians, Paul insisted that to come to become one of the people of God, you needed faith in Jesus alone. I mean, that's why sometimes you know people find some internet memes so funny. Here's a, here's a a meme that really appeals to the theological, let's say, nerds. I'm a meme portraying this guy who is really unhappy, you know, kind of really cross. And the title of that meme says. You know, he was circumcised the day before Paul's letter to Galatia arrived. It's really kind of cross. You know, why didn't I hear the gospel sooner? 
that would make my life much easier. I mean, that's where you really feel scarred by error, right? Really scarred by error. Now, back to the Romans. In Romans, Paul does something very similar. He's very keen to establish that God makes people right with him apart from their good deeds and apart from their Jewishness, be it circumcision or, or secondly, as we'll see, Mosaic law. And the shock of these verses come when you put it really bluntly, and it kind of goes back to how Robert set us up. Abraham was made right with God as a Gentile. It's a shock. It's a scandal. Abraham was made right with God as a Gentile. Look at Paul's summary in verse 11, first half of verse 11. Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still, what? Uncircumcised. Abraham was made right with God as a Gentile. And why is Paul so keen to establish that? Verse 11, the purpose was to make him the father of all both of the Jews and of the Gentiles, so that there would be one people united under one God who makes all people right by faith. And Abraham is the perfect example of just that. Now here, are, here, here is the implications of that, I think. This is far from theoretical. This is not just, you know, who, who was the first, you know, circumcision or faith? It's far from theoretical. What determines, what determines if one is a part of God's family is faith. Not any external markers. It doesn't matter if you are baptized as an infant or you are baptized as a grown-up. It doesn't matter if you happen to be on the church rolls somewhere, you know, in a scrolls or paper. It doesn't matter if you take regular communion. It even doesn't matter whether your parents were Christians and you were, you say you were brought up in a Christian family. What matters, Paul says, is faith. What matters is a personal faith. Well, in a sense, all of these things that I named matter. Let's not dismiss them, but none of it makes you a Christian. What makes you Christian, what matters is your faith in Jesus that credits his righteousness to us, to you and to me. Abraham was made right, but not by any external marker. And firstly, we saw circumcision. He was made right as a Gentile, as uncircumcised. But second, second, Abraham was made right by faith, but not by law. Not by law. Not because he observed what God said. And that's starting from verse 13. Now here, starting from verse, verse 13, Paul tackles the second external marker of the people of God, in the Old Testament, namely the law. And what Paul says to the Jews, it's equally shocking. 
the fact that you possess the law doesn't make you right with God. I mean, think, same goes for us really. We can't say we are Christian because, you know, my grandmother took me to the Sunday school from three years old, when I was three years old, or because, you know, we attended youth camps or Bible studies. That makes me Christian. Or because we have, you know, Bible laying around the house somewhere. That's why I'm Christian. No. But, but I think Paul does hear something more. He does hear something more. He turns our attention to God and what he has promised to all those who believe. God has promised to those who trust in him that they will inherit the world. Well, that's a massive promise, isn't it? Verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world, did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Again, Abraham is the one perfect example of that. So Paul unpacks, if I may say, the mechanics of how God works. And what Paul says in our passage today, that God does what he says. The, the contrast Paul draws is between the law and the promise. Both are good, but only one can deliver, and that is the promise of God. Only the promise of God delivers. Why? Because the law involves the duty to keep it. And if becoming the people of God, if becoming his child depends on observing the law then look at verse 14 paul says who needs faith who needs the promise they are made void they're dismissed and verse 15 it leaves everyone without hope because no one can do it no one can reach and fulfill god's standards on their own well, maybe this little illustration will help you because, you know, it kind of, it kind of sounds, you know, a bit technical and a bit complicated. So I thought I need to think hard of an illustration about this because it's so, so important. There is a prospect for our family trip to Poland next summer. In fact, Madder and I, we have promised our children that we are going to do this. Now, in order for that, that trip to be enjoyable for both parties, we have decided to do this series of little trips around the kind of Latvia and maybe Baltics this year, you know, to help our children to behave better in our car and also, also for us as parents to be, become more patient. Very, very hard. But currently, because currently we struggle, we struggle leaving the city without a fight in a car. So that's what we've got, right? Now imagine, imagine I would say to my children, guys, we are going to Poland next summer if. We are going to Poland next summer if you perfectly obey 
all the instructions in our, all, of our, all of our mini trips this year, then we will do it. Now, what do you think? What do you think will happen? Two things will happen, really. If us going to Poland depends on their obedience, then it doesn't really matter what I've promised. And it really doesn't matter if my children believe me. If I have said, we are going to Poland, if you obey and do and behave in a car this year, it doesn't matter really what I've promised. It doesn't matter if they believe my promise. And B, we are not going anywhere because the dad is going to be really, really angry. And, and we'll cancel the trip, right? So there's no hope. What an amazing, you, you know what I'm, what I'm getting at? What an amazing opportunity to actually teach my children grace, isn't it? The Poland trip doesn't depend on your obedience, but on your dad doing what he said. On your dad promising you that we are going, and that promise depends on his decision, on his grace alone. The promise that rests on grace, that's the only guarantee. And that is how I think Paul applies this principle in verses 16 and 17. Look at verse 16. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, those who have the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. Now, Paul takes us back here. He takes us back here to Genesis chapter 12, the first time when, when he called Abraham. And what is most striking about the, the first few verses of chapter 12 in Genesis is what God says. Listen, I'll, I'll try to emphasize that. I will show you the land. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. In you all the families of there shall be blessed you hear there are no conditions god laid no rules before abraham only promise that what god says he will do friends that is how god has chosen to make people right with him jews and gentiles the only way god can achieve his plan of saving the nations is if he does it himself, all of it, if he doesn't leave anything to the obedience of the nations. That's the only, only, only way. The promise that rests on grace is the only guarantee. Now, friends, I wonder how easy do we find trusting in God's unconditional promise not on what you do, not on how you obey, not, not on how often or intense you read the word, come to church, attend the Bible study, uh, take the communion, you know, go, do the good deeds, help the granny. 
but only on his promise. Let me, let me emphasize some of his promises. Hear them. I have chosen you to be my son and daughter before the creation of the world, Ephesians 1. A lot of that comes from Ephesians 1. I have adopted you as my child in my family. I have forgiven you all your sins. I have washed you clean from your guilt. I have given you the spirit as the guarantee of your heavenly inheritance. I will get you there. I will do what I say. Now, do you find it easy? Do you find it easy to trust this fully, these promises? Are you trusting God with your life and eternity? And what I think Paul wants from us here today, he wants us to look at Abraham, to look at Abraham's example and be encouraged. Here is Paul's verdict of Abraham's faith. Look at verse 20. Verse 20. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Be encouraged by Abraham's example. Right, right, you might think, or you might even be tempted to say it loudly now. If only my faith would be a fracture of Abraham's faith. If only my little and wavering faith would be a fracture of, of Abraham's faith. That would be nice. How is that an encouragement when I consider my, my weak faith? How? Well, my point exactly, because verse 20 is just too wonderful to be true, isn't it? Because we know from the Old Testament how Abraham did, right? How inconsistent his faith often was. How he and Sarah struggled to come to terms with her barrenness that they couldn't have children on so many occasions and how they eventually ended up opting for Hagar, the Egyptian slave girl, as the surrogate mom. Well, not exactly perfect trust, isn't it? And yet the New Testament verdict of Abraham's faith is verse 20. Bottom line, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. What is Paul doing here? Is Paul kind of taking his, you know, imaginary Photoshop and airbrushing Abraham's faith here? No, what the New Testament says is that the general direction of Abraham's life was trusting that what God said, he will do. The general direction of his life, with all its ups and downs, with all the, the trust and lack of trust, his general direction was, I will take God at his word. So what exactly did Abraham believe about God? 
What should we be believing about God? Verse 17. He believed God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. You see, it wasn't theoretical knowledge to Abraham. Paul says in verse 19 that Abraham really, really considered his body as good as dead. And same went for Sarah. Let's put it bluntly, biology didn't give them both any hope. If you want to work out it in a detail, we have plenty of medical students present in quite why a couple where, where spouses are 100 years old would struggle conceiving children. They will tell you all about it. Now, Abraham acknowledged before God his helplessness. But because he believed in God who gives life to the dead, Abraham believed in hope of God against the biological hope. Against the biological hope. Abraham trusted that what God says he will do. He knows how to do it. That is why verse 22, faith was counted to him as righteousness. This faith. That is why Paul can say faith as weak and tiny as a mustard seed is still perfectly enough to make us right with God. It is enough. And we, my friends, share in this faith of Abraham. How? By trusting in God who gives life to the dead. Because God has always been in the business of giving life to the dead. Look at me. Uh, look with me at verse 22. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Paul is after us having a macro-scale view of faith. You see, our faith is not something domestic. Although our faith, sorry, faith is always personal, it's never private. It is not linked to some local Jewish religious sect. It is faith in the Creator God who gives life to the dead and credits faith in him and his work as righteousness. Apart from any external marks, apart from circumcision and the law in Abraham's case, apart from whatever we think we have achieved or our parents have achieved for us, apart from that, faith alone. Indeed, that is where Paul started in Romans. If you remember, the gospel of God is about what or whom? It's about his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And it concerns everyone. And Paul is eager to preach this gospel. To whom? To us, to Christians. Why? Because the gospel is God's power 
for salvation to everyone who believes, to the unrighteous pagan and to the self-righteous Jew. Because at the end of the day, everyone's under the sin, under sin. No one is righteous. And that is why the gospel is such great news. Because God has found a way to make unrighteous righteous while remaining himself perfectly righteous. Thanks be to Jesus. And that way is faith in what the death and resurrection of Jesus accomplishes. So at the, at the end of our time in this passage, how would you respond? How come you are a Christian? How would you respond to your friend's question next week, whatever tea you drink, it doesn't matter. How would you respond to that question? I think you should respond along the lines of, I am a Christian because God made me right with him through faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus my Lord. He does what he says. That's why I'm a Christian. A couple of years after our kitchen conversation with my friend, um, he gave another speech. He gave another short speech. It was on Madras and my wedding day. You know, after saying a number of, of, of a number of really embarrassing things about me, as they do in the weddings, right? He became serious, and here is what my friend said. I don't know what it is you have, but hang on it, and I'd like to have it too. And I think he meant faith. Now, I'm not saying, I'm not saying, uh, you know, I'm not elevating myself by saying this. Quite the opposite. Quite the opposite. I was a Christian barely two years when Madder and I got married. And those of you who've been in my house and seen the, our wedding picture in our living room would seriously doubt my maturity back then. I am saying this because my friend apparently recognized that despite many inconsistencies in my life, still the general direction of it was one of trust and confidence in what, in, in what God says he does. I think that's why he said it. So my friends, let us trust, let us trust the living God that he is truly able, truly able to make us right through faith in Jesus, because our God is in a business of making dead people alive, bringing spiritually dead people raising them with Jesus, giving them life now and in eternity. Well, let's pray for his help for us to trust in that. Let's pray. Oh, dear Lord, dear Lord, as we consider our faith, we, we're often so, so embarrassed. We, we know how weak and fragile and inconsistent and wavering our faith is we, we're not the heroes of you know the faith that that of Hebrews describes we're not part of the hall of fame but 
thank you, thank you for Abraham's example that actually the faith that is as big as the mustard seed is enough for you to turn us from the dead people seeking only our own good into your children that glorify your name and praise Jesus. Father, thank you so much that you do not make people right through any, any external markers, that you do not make people right through their works or through their baptism or through the communion or many other things or merely possessing the Bible at home. Thank you that you make us right only by trusting the death and resurrection of Jesus. So, Father, please, please plant this truth deep in our hearts that we might praise you for it and that we might be able to answer any questions with our friends, even next week, when asked, why are we Christian? Why, why, why? That we would be able to point to your grace in the Lord Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.